6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 19 through 21. So let's continue now. The, uh, Psalm 19 is going to shift gears here and go into the law of the Lord. We've been talking about stars and universes. No, the law of the Lord is perfect, complete. The Torah of the Lord. Torah means instruction, teaching. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. See, it's, it's what, what it's saying, the law of the Lord is perfect. It is flawless. It is complete. It never needs revision. God said this thousands of years ago, and it's still true. How many of you would take a course in physics using 1950 textbooks? How many of you would take a course in physics using 1999 in other words, science is constantly obsoleting itself, correcting itself, finding where it wasn't quite right before. The law of the Lord has never changed. And yet all these ideas are in his word too. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. Judgment is coming. The commandments reveal that. Moving on to verse 8. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Romans chapter 7. Paul says, wherefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy, just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. And we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. The fact that the law reveals us as sinners does, is not a fault of the law. That's what it was intended to do. It wasn't intended that we could keep it perfect. It was intended to, re, to reveal to us our inability to meet the law. And that's what we call law school. Romans 7 develops that from end to end. So the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The statutes of the Lord... And here we're talking the, the, the uh, in daily instructions for everyday life. The statue of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's interesting, the Ten Commandments are the root statutes, and that's uh, nine of the ten are, are quoted in the New Testament. The fourth one was, was the only one not explicitly uh, recounted. And, of course, the applications there are detailed in the epistles, particularly Ephesians chapter 4 and elsewhere. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Commandment means that which is appointed, warnings of life and death and so forth. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The judgments are coming. God's judgments are coming. 
The statue of the Lord are right, rejoicing the uh, heart. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. To teach fear is to teach the Bible, according to Psalm 34, which you will come to later, and uh, Deuteronomy 4 and elsewhere. The fear of the Lord sounds like a change in subject. No, to teach the fear is to teach the Bible is to teach the fear of the Lord. And judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, judgments are ordinances, verdicts, decisions of the judge. We need to understand God's righteousness because that will illuminate for us our need for his grace. That's basically the whole story. To know the warning and not heed it is sin, according to James 4.17. Now, going on with God's word here, more to be desired are they, God's commandments and so forth, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in the keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Do we desire God's word above everything else? Do we, do we, do we really, really favor time spent in his words over other things? If not, how else can we rise above our fallen nature? Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. What are those? Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. The word the is not in there, by the way, in the Hebrew. Innocent from great uh, transgression. What is the great transgression? The great transgression is the rejection of the remedy that God has provided for our uh, uh, shortcomings. That, that, that remedy is Jesus Christ. Knowing the creation, his word, all that, it's not enough. We must have a relationship with him. See, sinners were guilty even though they were ignorant of what they had done. Leviticus 5 points that out in the Torah. 5.17. The Old Testament made provision for sins of ignorance. Leviticus 4 deals with that. Numbers 15, 22 to 29. However, there was no atonement for presumptuous sins. That's scary. Presumptuous sins. Psalm says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. See, the words of our mouth reveals our heart. That's why in, a, in, certain, in some contexts, the words of our mouth can be our sacrifice before the altar. Because they, if they're revealing the meditation of our heart. And the word redeemer there is the word you would think it would be. It's the goel. One of the studies you want to take is what is a goel? You find that out in the book of Ruth. Also Leviticus 25, 25 and Numbers 35 and Isaiah 43. The goel, the kinsman redeemer. In Revelation chapter 5, when I saw 
in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book sealed within and on the backside and sealed with seven seals. And said, who is worthy to open the seals and to, loose the, to take the book and to loose the seals thereof? No man was found worthy in heaven or on earth or under the earth to open the seals and to look thereon. And John says, I sobbed convulsively until the elder said, wait, wait, wait. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he hath prevailed. And John looks and he sees the Lamb, Jesus Christ. He is our kinsman redeemer. He had to be our kinsman. He had to be a man. He had to be, that's why he came to earth incarnate. He had to be our kinsman. He had to be able to perform. He had to be willing to perform. And he also had to assume all the obligations of the one that he was redeeming. And he has done that. It's completed. But the kinsman redeemer was also the avenger of blood. And he comes in his second coming as that avenger. Okay, we can still squeeze in a couple more so we don't spend our entire session on this one. Let's go to Psalm 20. To the chief musician, a Psalm of David, the Lord hear thee in the day of trouble, the name of God, in the name of the God of Jacob defend thee, send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice, Selah. Psalm 20 appears to be a psalm, a prayer, before a battle. Psalm 21 appears to be a praise after the victory. And they're both psalms of David. And uh, the first five verses here, the people pray for their king. And uh, in Deuteronomy 20, first four verses, it required the officers and the soldiers to first dedicate themselves to the Lord before a battle. And that's what they're doing here. The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend thee. That's a strange term for David to use perhaps, but God was never ashamed to be called the God of Jacob. And uh, remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice, Selah. Accept thy sacrifice. Not my sacrifice. Thy sacrifice. Uh-oh, what's that about? Is it possible that this psalm is also in its own way messianic? We'll take a look at that. that is gonna, that's going to raise a whole other issue for us here. We'll come to that in a little bit. Grant thee according to thine own heart and fulfill all thy counsel. See, David did more than just worship. He also sought the Lord's will concerning his strategy for the battle. And he does that in 1 Samuel 23 and elsewhere. Grant thee according to thine own heart and fulfill all thy counsel. We will rejoice in thy salvation. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Now, as we read this psalm, we're going to suddenly get a feeling that there's maybe three levels here. It's a psalm that you could use going into battle. It's a psalm that relates to David going into his battle. But the ultimate son of David, of course, is none other than the Messiah himself. And as you reread this psalm, you'll get the feeling that all three are operative here. It was a real psalm David used before a battle. It's applicable to Israel going to any battle, but it also 
puts the son of David in those shoes when you need to see it that way. We will rejoice in thy salvation. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Remember in John 11, Jesus says, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I knew that thou hearest me always. And Christ is probably the only one that the Father always answers and hears and answers. Now know that I, the Lord, saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. That certainly applied to David in, a, in one context. It certainly applies to Jesus Christ in a much broader one. The king was the focus in this psalm. The king was the life and breath of the nation. The king was the lamp of Israel, 2 Samuel 21. The king was the special target of the enemy for obvious reasons. God's covenant with David assured him a victory over his enemies in 2 Samuel 7, verse 11. But in a broader sense, his covenant with Christ is far more, is, is far more reaching. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. See, if God can be for us, who can be against us? The way Paul phrases that in Romans 8. Save, Lord. That the word in Hebrew is Hosanna. Let the king hear us when we call. Indeed. Well, we have a companion psalm, Psalm 21, to finish our study for the evening. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the king shall joy in thy strength, O Lord, and thy salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice. This is a, a psalm of praise and thanksgiving, apparently after a great victory. And it would seem, at least, that this simply parallels Psalm 20. But there may be some surprises in store for us here. The king shall join in strength, O Lord, in thy salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice. Thou hast given him his heart's desire, and hast not withholden the request of his lips. Selah. Okay. And by the way, the word, the word salvation there can simply mean deliverance or victory, incidentally. Not, not, not necessarily soteriologically. For thou preventest him with the blessings of goodness. Thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. The word prevent here really means to see to it beforehand. It's an old English term meaning to see to it beforehand. Used in Psalm 59, 10, Psalm 79, uh, to 8 also. For thou preventest him with the blessings of goodness. Thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked life of thee, and thou gavest it him. Even length of days forever and ever. Boy, this sounds like another coronation, doesn't it? His glory is great in thy salvation. Honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him. For thou hast made him most blessed forever. Thou hast made him exceeding glad with thy countenance. In your joy of victory, you could see the nation Israel ascribing this, applying it to David. And indeed, they must have. And yet, there's something much deeper going on here. It even more... Um, broadly applies to the son of David. For the king trusteth in the Lord, and, though, and through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. Thine hand shall find out all thine enemies. Thy right hand shall find out those that hate thee. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Boy, this is starting to get a little heavy here. The word find out there in, in uh, verse 8 
is to dispose of. Thine hand will dispose of all thine enemies. Um, thy right hand shall dispose of, of, of those that hate thee. See, all those that rejected him are his enemies. Fire is fire, and judgment is judgment. And that's what's coming up here. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven. Boy, it sounds like this is getting beyond just a victory thing for David. Their fruit shalt thou destroy from the earth, their seed from among the children of men. For they intended evil against thee. They imagined a mischievous device which they are not able to perform. Wow, kind of a strange tone for a victory psalm, isn't it? Therefore shalt thou make them turn their back when thou shalt make, the, make ready thine arrows upon thy strings against the face of them. Be thou exalted, Lord, in thine own strength. So will we sing and praise thy power. Wow. This is a psalm of David. I hear echoes of 1 Samuel 2 where it, Samuel 2 where it says, thou, those that um, honor me, I will honor. Could this also be a messianic psalm? It's not on the list of messianic psalms as we commonly report them as we did in their earlier uh, summaries. It's also not quoted in the New Testament as referring to Christ. So for that reason, it wouldn't be normally designated as a messianic psalm. And yet, Israel from the beginning held this psalm as speaking not just of David, but also of the Messiah. The Targum, which is the Chaldean paraphrase of the Old Testament, and the Talmud, they both teach that the king mentioned in this psalm is the Messiah. The great Talmudic rabbi, Solomon Isaki, which is commonly known as Rashi, born in 1040 A.D., you're talking 10th century, 11th century guy, he endorsed this interpretation, that this would be messianic. But he had a footnote. He also suggested that they should give it up because Christians were making use of this psalm as evidence that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. So he recognized it was messianic, but he tried to discourage its use because the Christians were picking up Picking up on this with, with their zeal, um, they, they could, see, could see the Messiah in it. There are certain churches, denominations that are very liturgical. And this psalm is used by liturgical churches to observe certain days such as Ascension Day. They use this psalm as commemorating the Ascension. That is the return of the Lord Jesus to glory and his presence there as our great high priest. And when you read it, so you can go, now you can go back and you can read that psalm as applying to David. You can read that psalm as applying to Christ. And it'll have, it's really like a two-tier trip as you go. J. Stuart Perron said, Each Jewish monarch was but a feeble type of Israel's true king. And all the hopes and aspirations of pious hearts, however... They might have for their immediate object and then reigning, the then reigning monarch, whether David himself or one of his sons. Still, they looked beyond these to him who should be David's Lord as well as his son, which of course is Jesus Christ. That's surprising to see in his writings as he's somewhat of a liberal theologian. Let's just go through it again. The king shall show joy in his strength, O Lord, in thy salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice! Thou hast given him his heart's desire and hast not withholding the request of his lips, Selah. I hear Jesus Christ praying in John 17. 
For thou provedest him the blessings of goodness, thou settest a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life of thee, and thou gavest it him in the length of days forever and ever. How long? Forever and ever. The glory is great in thy salvation. Honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him, for thou hast made him the most blessed forever. Thou hast made him exceeding glad with thy countenance. The king trusteth in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. Thine hand shall find out all thine enemies. Thy right hand shall find out those that hate thee. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. Doesn't sound like David to me. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their fruit shalt thou destroy from the earth, and their seed from among the children of men. For they intended evil against thee. They imagined a mischievous device which they are not able to perform. Now, if you shift from here to 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in the saints and be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wow. The psalmist continues, Therefore thou shalt make them turn their back when thou shalt make ready thine arrows upon thy strings against the face of them. Be thou exalted, Lord, in thine own strength. So will we sing and praise thy power. Boy, boy, boy. Are you one of Christ. Do you have a relationship with him? Because there is a judgment coming. That's the that's most certain thing in, in destiny. You want to be in his shoes. Well, this Psalm 21 sort of opens the door for a very different kind of messianic psalm. And next time we're going to go through Psalm 22, 23, and 24. They are sometimes called the shepherd psalms. The middle one, Psalm 23, we probably most of us have memorized. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and so forth. The one just in front of that, Psalm 22, is probably one of the most remarkable passages in the entire Bible because it reads as if it was dictated by the Lord Jesus himself as he hung on the cross during the crucifixion. It's astonishing. It opens up and close, it opens and closes with his first and last words from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it ends with, so shall it be done. And uh, so it's going to be a very special study, a very uh, special study. And then Psalm 23 will go through, of course, and to Psalm 24. These are, uh, these are clearly labeled by most countings as very conspicuously messianic. So I encourage you, to, uh, for your, in preparation for your next session, to not just read, but really meditate on those three psalms. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Precious, precious psalms. They're, each is so different. Many of them are so pregnant with so many insights and meaning just reading them or even just trying to exposit them seems like a very, very frail effort. You really need to spend time immersed in them and let them speak to you. 
It will be far more than knowledge that you gain. It'll be, it'll be a gateway to his presence. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you have brought us into an awareness of just who you are. When we look up at the night sky, we are humbled as we try to understand or grasp your majesty as creator. As we look through the telescope or whether we look through a microscope, we're overwhelmed at the elegance of design that surrounds us. The undeniable evidence of an intelligence that's beyond comprehension, that has fashioned the world in which we live. And yet we realize, Father, we see only a cursed world. We have no glimpse of what it was like before it was cursed. But Father, we go even further and we thank you that you have revealed to us your plan of redemption. And Father, we do pray that you would help us through your Holy Spirit and by immersing in your word that we might more fully understand the extremes that you have gone to on our behalf, that we might live, that we might have life, that we might have access to you, that we might be with you throughout eternity. And Father, we begin to realize that we'll spend that eternity just discovering what it cost you to give us such a benefit. So, Father, we do pray that you would reignite in each of us a new passion for your word, that we each might grow in grace, the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, that we might be more fruitful stewards of the opportunities that you've put before us in the days ahead. As we commit ourselves without any reservation whatsoever into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Redeemer, our Goel, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music